Beloved congregation of the Lord, would you turn once more to Matthew 22 as we continue our series through this great parable of the wedding banquet in verse 9 of Matthew 22. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. Well, I trust as we've been surveying this parable from the lips of our Lord Jesus, we are seeing that he is instructing us in a great many things, not only in the nature of the gospel itself, of the free grace of his love offered to needy sinners, pictured in the form of a wedding invitation. Not only does he set forth the fearful realities of judgment that befall those despisers of the gospel, principally the Jewish nation, but also all the others who reject the gospel. But as well, we have here a remarkable uh, picture of the call of the Gentiles. As in this parable, the uh, subjects of the kingdom despised the invitation and even slew and kill some of the servants of the king. In the aftermath of those murderers being slaughtered, he instructs his servants to go forth into the highways and whomever they should find should be bidden to the marriage. And given its place in the parable as well as the overall theology of Matthew's gospel, we saw last time that this can refer to nothing other than the Gentile nations, the gospel going forth in a special way in the New Testament times unto the nations of the Gentiles. And we just began to get something of a handle on this wonderful doctrine of the scriptures, tracing out the origin of the Gentiles in the um, Noahic covenant as the uh, descendants of Noah were instructed to propagate all of, the na- all of the terrains of the world. And as God himself scattered them in the aftermath of the judgment upon Babel, the nations were constituted distinct people groups. And they develop their unique customs, languages, and so forth. And while each one would have had some remnants of the true religion inherited from Noah, we also saw how intermixed with their distinctive character was much sin and darkness, idolatry and wickedness. As there was more and more departure from the truth, the light of salvation and the promises of the gospel were enclosed into that one nation of the Jews, separated from all others, ordained to dwell alone until such time as the Lord Christ should come and be rejected of his own people. And so the call of the Gentiles would come. And I say we just began to get a handle upon this, and I am persuaded that tracing out something of the glorious truth of the call of the Gentiles is essential in our own day. You think about all the 
the pressures of our culture in pluralistic North America, teaching us that Christianity is just one religion among many, just one way of looking at the world, whereas the Bible says it is the one true religion. And the Lordship of Christ is not contained within one people. No, it is he is for all peoples. You think about our own temptation to discouragement, Living in an apostate age, in an apostate nation, where there is a unique hardness to the calling of sinners to repentance and faith. And the discouragement that sets in is we see faithful churches sometimes linger, uh, dwindling and sometimes growing cold and stale, departing from her mission. Maybe we sense that in ourselves. Are we truly living in accord with the will of Christ? Do we, as a church and as families and as individuals, do we have in view that glorious vision of the Gentiles being brought into the church, peoples of every color, language, and kindred? I'm persuaded, you see, that we must trace out this glorious doctrine. Jesus prophesied this to be so. And the day in which he spoke this uh, parable, it was yet to come. It had not yet happened. It was something that was unknown, something that was unforeseen by the great many people, that God would visit his grace and salvation unto the nations. But in this, he stood in the long line of the prophets of old. Indeed, where you would survey all the prophets and the message of the Old Testament scriptures in particular, this is a central theme of them all, that the Gentiles, all the nations, should come unto the light of the gospel. We read, did we not, in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, in that great Jerusalem council, as uh, more Gentiles were being brought in, and as it was that um, different uh, problems were arising. How do we relate the Old Testament law to the New Testament context? How do we deal with things like circumcision? Is there even grace extended to the Gentiles at all? We saw how the words of the prophets were used to settle such matters and to direct the church in, her, uh, in the will of her king. And so I put to you that as we uh, come to this point in this study, we should advance not only having considered the identity of the Gentiles and the spiritual need of the Gentiles in the last sermon, now considering in a more general sense the call of the Gentiles prophesied. I believe this is a useful exercise that we would trace out this great theme and in this way we would be encouraged and strengthened in biblical truth. So the call of the Gentiles prophesied. Where would we come first, do you suppose, congregation? Well, we begin with the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. And there, I would ask you to turn to that uh, mother promise that is given in John Genesis chapter 3. And we... We'll begin at verse 14 as the Lord God himself addresses uh, the serpent, which is 
and as, as it were, a stand-in for the devil himself. And there we read in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. I say we begin here. This, the first of the great gracious promises given unto the needy and sinful church, even at the very beginning of world history, right after the fall into sin, death, and darkness, you have the light of this promise shining through hope. Hope not just for one people group, but for humanity in general, in their lost condition. Satan had horribly marred and disfigured the image of God in man and woman. The very race of humanity had become enslaved unto the wicked one. And so God promises that the seed of the woman will be at war with the seed of the serpent. A spiritual division will be drawn. But ultimately, what is the nature of the promise? But that through a champion, the seed of the woman par excellence, there shall be a destruction of the devil and all his works, his head shall be bruised and crushed. Where we would study any prophecy of scripture, here is where we begin. It's all focused upon Christ, his redemptive work, his glorious coming and his great cross work, dying on the cross, rising from the third day, all that flows from this, his coming in power at Pentecost, his coming in judgment at the end of history, all is bound up here in this promise. And I just point to you in the first place, it concerns the human race in general. This is the arena in which the Bible takes place, not limited to one people group, it concerns the entire human family. That in the first place. Now we turn again to this book of Genesis and we, we turn again to chapter 9, which we considered at some length um, last Sunday. And you'll remember that we focus particularly, as this chapter does, uh, upon the Noahic covenant, the promises given to Noah and to his seed that the regular patterns of seasons would continue unto the end. And we noted that this was a gracious covenant to secure the uh, conditions for the gathering of God's church and elect through all ages. We saw how it reveals a renewed mandate for the people of God to subdue the world and to multiply. And we saw how it reveals the holy character of God and his law. But we did not consider the last portion of it. And is that what I would consider with you now in verse 18, where there is a very important episode in the life of Noah, which we must consider if we're to understand this important matter of the calling of the Gentiles. Will you look with me in verse 18? And we will read from there. 
And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were backward. And they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. Before we proceed, let's just take a survey of what has happened. A great man and a hero of God has fallen into gross sin, drunkenness. Noah, a man of frailty like any other, has fallen into this sin, and it proved to be the occasion of a far greater sin, where Ham, one of his three sons, uh, perceives his nakedness. And while it is uh, not explicitly stated, it seems as though some sort of assault may have happened in connection with that, even in a natural uh, sexual perversion, as some people have speculated. And so it was that Ham is guilty of a unique crime here, one of the three sons, whereas the two other sons, Shem and Japheth, they take the occasion to cover their father's nakedness and to preserve his modesty and decency. Noah awakes from this. And there we read in verse 25, And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. So here we have an important prophecy, and it's important to understand it correctly. Now, it's important to know that not uh, that the curse that befalls um, as a result of Ham's sin does not fall on Ham himself. Now, why is that? Well, some have speculated perhaps uh, Noah's grandson, Canaan, may have been a party to Ham's sin or otherwise approved of it. And so there seems to be that the curse falls on Canaan to guard against any impression that all of Ham's descendants, of which a great portion of the whole earth is constituted, is certainly not the case that all of Ham's descendants receive this curse, but only that line that approved of his sin and imitated the same. The land of Canaan, of course, was populated by the nations that polluted the promised land with gross sins. And so Moses also seems to be recording this as the author of Genesis to spur the people on in their conquest of these evil nations descended from Canaan. And the first place is what we see here. But in conjunction with that, the, the curse that falls on one line of uh, Ham's descendants, there is also a blessing, a twofold blessing that comes upon the two lines, 
that flow from Noah, one the line of Shem, and one the line of Japheth. Now, Japheth, the uh, prophecy in verse 26, is very brief. It simply says, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. But while short, it contains quite a bit. For if you would think about it, what is singled out here is that Shem will have the Lord God as his God. That from the line of Shem will be the, uh, the people of promise. They will be uniquely constituted, the people that have God as their God. And so it proves so, for out of the line of Shem comes Abraham, of whom we will speak of more. But verse 27 is particularly relevant here. The line of Japheth, it says this in verse 27, God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Now, indeed, the, um, the enlarging of Japheth, Japheth seems to be that many nations spring forth from him. Indeed, historically, we know that all the nations of Europe, that they descend from Japheth, is also uh, uh, nations in Asia Minor, such as the Turks and so forth. And so there's an enlarging of Japheth, but also you notice that a dwelling in the tents of Shem. So there is some uh, intimation here that what happens is that the descendants of Japheth will in some sense partake of the blessings of Shem. They will dwell in the tents of Shem as they are pictured here in this prophecy as a spiritual people, as a people who have the Lord God as their God. And so it is that Dr. Gill points to the common received interpretation of this prophecy. Quote, God shall persuade the Gentiles, the posterity of Japheth, by the sweet alluring voice of his gospel, and through the power of his grace accompanying it, to embrace and profess Christ and his gospel and join with his churches and walk with them in all the commandments and ordinances of Christ. Indeed, historically, what we do see, and even in the book of Acts, is that the gospel, it spreads out of Jerusalem, it goes out into Samaria, it goes out into Asia Minor, but it then spreads into Greece and from Greece to all of Europe. And so there is an order here where that is the first uh, line of people that are first brought into the uh, Church of Christ in great numbers. And of course, we've not seen that limited to that, but as especially the great missionary movements of the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, now we see it embracing all the family groups of the whole world, then coming under the tents of Shem, the profession of God as our God in Christ. So that we see in this book of Genesis, but before we leave the book of Genesis, we ought to at least refer to one of the prophecies in connection with the seed of Abraham. And of course, we could say much about the prophecies in connection with Abraham, for they all in some way have to do with the Lord Jesus as the true seed of Abraham, through whom uh, the promises of the seed of the woman are 
realized. So there's a narrowing from the seed of the woman to the seed of Shem and now to the seed of Abraham, becoming more and more specific in this line of prophecy. I think the one we will focus on is in Genesis 22 in particular, right after the episode in which God commands uh, Abraham to sacrifice his precious son Isaac as a sacrifice. And then as he raises his knife, God sends the angel to say, do not do it, do not lay a hand upon him. And he provides for Abraham a, a ram as the true sacrifice. And we read, uh, right after that, the angel of the Lord continues to speak in verse 16 of Genesis 22 and said, By myself has I have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee and in multiplying I will multiply. Thy seed is the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore and thy seed shall possess the gates of the gate of his enemies and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice now there's a lot of similarities between the promise given in Genesis 12 to Abraham and now given in 22. And we did speak a little bit about that last time, but I mention it here because what you begin to see is there's the language of possession beginning to take place. He says, you will possess the gates of his enemies. So there's the multiplication of the seed of Abraham, as vast as the stars of the sky, as vast as the sand of the seashore. It will uh, bring blessing to all the nations of the world, but also the gates of the enemies will be possessed by the seed of Abraham. Now, here we do see that there's a more of a national focus within the nation of the Jews, and yet even this is outward-facing. I remember reading um, a post from Ben Shapiro, who's a popular um, proponent of the Jewish religion today. And he was really trying to emphasize how, uh, how tolerant and agreeable um, uh, the religion of Judaism is. It claims to be the, the one uh, religion that God approves of, and yet says we don't proselytize. We don't try to bring other people to our, our point of view. We just allow other people to obey the commandments given to Noah. And this was Ben Shapiro's point of view. I would say that even if he were to study the Old Testament, he would see that embedded in the prophecies given here to the seed of Abraham, it always had a broader focus, all the nations of the earth being blessed. Staying within the, uh, the books written by Moses now, we'll go ahead to Numbers chapter 24. Numbers 24, which is uh, the prophecy given to Balaam. And remember that Balaam was a Gentile prophet, and he has a unique distinction in that he at various times tried to curse the people of God, the Jewish church, and each time was forced to bless them. He was also the one who was delivered a message from a donkey. So... I'm sure you'll, you've heard of that story. But here, I speak of the prophecy in chapter 24, verse 17, which brings together some of the language that we've already seen, but 
but brings it forward in a most interesting way. And Numbers 24, verse 17, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy the children of, of Sheth. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies, and Israel shall do valiantly. Now there's a prophecy here concerning a great champion who is described both as a star and as a scepter. And what you see is that there is great victories promised here against various Gentile nations who were prominent uh, opponents of the Israelite nation in their day. Now, if you would uh, look at those particular nations and you would trace out the life of David, King David, you would see that his military exploits basically match up with, with this profile, that indeed each one of these particular nations are involved in military conquest from that great king of Israel. So, Many have argued that there is at least a partial fulfillment of this prophecy in the life of David. However, where you, where you look at the whole tenor of this, and especially in conjunction with the prophecies we've already seen, beginning with the seed of the woman, continuing with the prophecies given to the seed of, of Shem and the seed of Abraham, we see this is more than just David that is being spoken of. There's uh, clearly some kind of fulfillment that's looking ahead further to that, to the greater son of David. And so Dr. Gill writes in this connection, He, that is Christ, is called the morning star for his glory, brightness, and splendor, and for the light that comes by him, and the influence of his grace, and the blessings of it on the sons of men. And he may be called a scepter that is a royal bear, a scepter bearer because of his royalty. He not only has the name of a king, but has a kingdom both of nature, providence, and grace, and rules with a scepter of grace, mercy, and righteousness. And as he is to spring from Jacob or Israel, so he did, being a son of Abraham and a descendant of Jacob and the tribe of Judah, the family of David. Now, I brought you this because the language here of possession is again entered in. In verse 18, and Edom shall be a possession. That's the language that's used. And where we would um, compare this prophecy with another prophecy that we're all familiar with, I'm sure we're going to see parallels, namely the second psalm, the second psalm. Now, this prophecy, which I bring you to now, what it does is it is a good parallel to the prophecy of Balaam because, again, there are some fulfillments with the life of David, but in uh, this case in particular, it simply cannot be uh, limited to that. It must bring forth into greater fulfillments in the life of the son of David. For in the second psalm, there is explicit reference to the anointed, verse 2, the uh, Christ, literally. And likewise, he is referred to as the Son of God. Look with me in verse 
6. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. The Gentiles, literally, for thine inheritance. And the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. So there is, again, the language of possession, possessing the Gentiles through this promised champion who, yes, is the seed of the woman. Yes, the seed of Shem. Yes, the seed of Abraham, but he is the seed of David par excellence. He is the one who fulfills all the types and shadows which David could only gesture towards. He is the one who is the name the Son of God, par excellence. And what is included in this prophecy? He will possess the nations, the heathen, the Gentiles, the uttermost parts of the earth. They are promised unto him. Ask of me, it says in verse 8. He asks, not on the basis of just a mere request, but on the basis of his merit, his worth, his worthiness to receive them on the basis of his glorious person, on the basis of his finished work upon the cross, he is to ask and he will receive. And so it is, you read this whole book of Psalms and what comes up again and again, but the gathering of the nations in the unity of the true religion. You don't have to look all these up, but let me just uh, cite a few of them that explicitly refer to this. In Psalm 22, again, very filled with the language of the Messiah. In Psalm 22, verse 27, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. Psalm 67 and verse 4. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations, the Gentiles, upon earth. Psalm 68 verse 32. Sing unto God, ye kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises unto the Lord. Psalm 117 verses 1 and 2. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye Nations, praise him, all ye people, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. We could multiply examples, but you don't read those Psalms apart from the context established in Psalm 2, one of the two Psalms which introduces the whole book of Psalms, together with Psalm 1. And Psalm 2 explicitly frames all of those blessings to the Gentiles with this promise given unto the seed of David, the true Messiah. They are promised unto him. And with this, this brings us not just to the prophecies in the books of Moses and the prophecies in the books of, book of Psalms, but also the prophets themselves. And of course, there's many, many prophecies we could turn to, but the one that I think is probably the most significant that any study of the call of the Gentiles must include is that in Amos, Amos 9, which of course we've read, Amos in the ninth chapter. 
Amos chapter 9 and read in verse 11. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David, which is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, they, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all of the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. So many things that could be said here, but there is a reference to David, which obviously cannot refer to the man David, who is long dead, but it, even as we've been considering in our series on uh, Jeremiah in the 30th chapter, David is often referred to as the Messiah, or rather the Messiah, more properly referred to as David. This is the coming of the son of David, the great seed that we've been tracing out as the focal point of all of prophecy, particularly the gathering of the Gentiles. That day which is spoken of is the gospel day, the day that inaugurates the very final chapter of human history as the fullness of grace, power, and strength is revealed in the coming of this glorious Messiah. He indeed is born of the line of David, born unto that Virgin Mary, and so rightly receives this title and this royal line. But you notice that it's in the day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen. I know how far the house of David had fallen. The nation of Israel in those days had been, for the most part, scattered through the various exiles unto many nations. Even the kingdom of Judah was just a small rump of its former glory, and that itself was under Roman occupation. And even uh, the uh, one occupying the throne, King Herod and the Herodians, were not from the line of David at all. They were from the Herodians. But it's the tabernacle of David that's spoken of, specifically speaking of the focal point of worship as the tabernacle was. And in that sense, it seems to especially denote the actual church of the Jews in its dilapidated state. The worldliness and ungodliness of the Pharisees adding heavy burdens upon the backs of the people, removing the law of love with a law of self-righteousness and pride and vanity. Certainly, many teachings of the scribes and elders had utterly overshadowed the clear teachings of Scripture, so much so that even when the Messiah himself was in their midst, they accused him of being a uh, uh, one who is possessed by demons or else a traitor to the people. It was a most fallen state, the church of God, when the Messiah came. But it was through him that it was risen up, 
from the dilapidated condition. A great reformation was forged as the Lord Jesus began to establish a new foundation for the worship of God by gathering his apostles, his disciples unto himself in order that they would bring the church upon the sure foundation of pure teaching from the chief prophet himself. And surely through his shed blood and through his death and through his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, there came upon that early church such a great power and such a great um, unction from on high that they were able They were able to indeed bring that message of the gospel unto many, beginning with the Jewish nation, as indeed that Holy Spirit was poured forth and 3,000 were converted at Pentecost. And then you have, as persecution emerges, the going out unto Samaria and unto the Jewish diaspora. We read here, however, in that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins. I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Now the striking thing here is, That again, you have this language of possession, which we have seen traced out through all these prophecies, only here unambiguously given in connection with the coming of the Christ. Here is the one who possesses the remnant of Edom. Now, Edom was used in Balaam's prophecy as one of the prominent nations that would oppose the people of God. And here, it seems to be uh, a, um, a name that's given to all the Gentiles without distinction as Uh, Some of the Jewish writers also seem to have done, referring to even the Romans as Edomites, even though they were not descended from Jacob's brother Esau, as the kingdom of Edom was. And not only the remnant of Edom, but of all the heathen, all the nations which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. We're reminded here, it's not through might nor by power, but by his spirit, by his unction, by his mighty work, as the call of the name of God goes forth in the almighty everlasting gospel. It is God himself that will do this. Nothing else could possibly be equal to the task of bringing these pagan, heathen Gentiles under the captivity of his word and spirit. But where God purposes to do it, he will do it. So it is that this is cited in that uh, account we read in the book of Acts. You remember there was um, the dispute over this circumcision uh, principle. Is it the case that the Gentiles who are being brought into the church should receive circumcision? Do they need to become Jews first and accept the Old Testament particular laws before they can become Christians? That was the point issue in Simon Peter. He speaks of the glorious work he had witnessed with the calling of um, Gentiles like Cornelius. And then um, 
Paul and Barnabas, they get up and they begin to speak about how the Gentiles are being saved through their own work. And then in verse 13 of Acts 15, you have uh, the Lord Jesus' brother James speaks. And there he says in verse 13, And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and I will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build upon the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Here is the great insight that James brought. This was not some kind of plan B. It was not some kind of unforeseen happenstance that had been forced upon God through the rejection of the Messiah by the Jews. No, it was known from the beginning of the world. It was prophesied by the prophet Amos and by others. That the tabernacle of David, which had fallen down in its terrible condition in the hands of the Jews, it would be raised up to a greater glory as never before, as the true worship of God is reestablished in purity, simplicity, spirituality, sincerity, as sinners are saved from all nations. It's this that many other prophets speak of. And these things, we have to say, have been fulfilled since the coming of Christ. They are being fulfilled. And we look ahead to glorious fulfillments of the same. Micah 4, verses 1 and 2. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations, many Gentiles shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, into the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways. And we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 11. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. Jeremiah 16 and verse 19. O Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction. The Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and shall say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and things wherewith there is no profit. You get a sense for the very heartbeat of biblical religion. It is not, well, we've got our little circle, we've got our little enclave, and we are content to keep the joys of the Lord unto ourselves. No, 
That was the religion of the Pharisees, the religion of the scribes, the religion of Jesus is this, that all nations will flow unto the church, that the word of the Lord will flow out of Mount Zion, that all nations will confess that before where they worship vanity, now they worship the true God. I would close with this, Isaiah 49, verse 6, that glorious conversation between the Father and the Son concerning the great work of salvation which he will, he will work. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, and he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. One preacher asked where God would so promise the nations unto Christ and say, even as he did in Psalm 2, ask of me, ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. He asked this question. Do you think that he forgot to ask? Surely not. Amen.